I'm Jill Shong. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. Coming up, we hear from materials scientist and science writer Inisa Ramirez about her new award-winning book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. How has our culture been shaped by inventions in materials and matter? We're about to find out. Today, we talk with Inisa Ramirez about her new book, The Alchemy of Us. In this book, she examines eight materials science inventions and how they shaped the human experience. She writes about how materials were shaped by inventors, of course, but also how these materials in turn shaped us, shaped our culture. Each invention had consequences some were intended and some were unintended. And these consequences changed us. Okay, so which inventions does she write about? So it's the oldies but goodies. Uh, clocks, steel rails, copper cables, photographic film, light bulbs, scientific labware even, hard disks and silicon chips. So it's fairly dry material but she takes a new look at how these inventions really changed our culture in profound ways. So again, this is the book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. So this is a reminder, you're listening to the How on Earth Science Show on KGNU. And of course, this is our pledge drive week. If you love the science show like we do, and you know there's a committed team of volunteers here at the station that love to tell you about current science, current work in science, please call in, support this local radio station, 303-499-4885, or you can pledge online at kgnu.org. If you're interested by the book we're talking about today by Anissa Ramirez, and we'll tell you more about it shortly, we have a limited number of copies available to listeners who pledge to support the station today at a level of $88.50. Yes, that's 88.5. You can pledge online at kgnu.org or call in 303-499-4885. One of the things this book, The Alchemy of Us, describes is how the Industrial Revolution, um, particularly the invention of clocks and artificial lights, changed our sleeping patterns. So it turns out our ancestors slept very differently. Our ancestors slept at night in two separate stages. In the first stage, they would go to bed early around nine and sleep for three to four hours. Then they would wake up for one hour. Then they would go back to sleep for another three to four hours. This is what they call segmented or shift sleep. So Beth, you've thought a lot about sleep. And I think, didn't you interview somebody about a, some sleep book or something? Um, yeah, I've talked to a few people about sleep. And it, there's so much interesting research. And of course, the research in sleep labs tells us that we should get seven to eight hours sleep. But that's like the optimal amount or the 
unattainable <laughs> but, but highly desirable amount. I personally know I don't get nearly that much, although I would love to. But I think the way that um, Ramirez talks about time is really fascinating because it shows how we humans can change depending on our culture. You know, so these inventions like the clock, for instance, have really changed what we've done over our history as a species. In The Alchemy of Us, uh, the book that we're giving away to our members who pledge, the author describes how the inventions of the clock and the light bulb changed all that. So the light bulb allowed us to stay up later, and the clock gets us to rise up earlier. We've had ways to mark the passage of time, like sundials and water clocks and later hourglasses. Then eventually came clocks, but at first they were used to mark time. They were not all set to the very same time. So in this book, it tells the history of how a woman in London sold time in the early 1900s. The exact time was located at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Storekeepers in London needed to know the exact time, but weren't able to make the trip to Greenwich as often as they needed. So this woman walked to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich once per week and, ad and adjusted her clock to the Greenwich time. She then went and sold this time to storekeepers in London. She was called the Greenwich Time Lady. It was actually a good business for her and her family for many years. Yeah, that's a fantastic piece of history because prior to calibration of time, what we humans did is we used the sun and we'd go to sleep pretty much when it got dark because up until really recently, there wasn't nighttime lighting. So we'll talk about the, the shift sleep that seems to be part of human history, but also it's worth noting that in terms of our genetics, that people who are night owls have a slightly different genetic program than people who are called larks or are morning people. And there is an evolutionary advantage to that when you think about human history. For most of our history, we were hunter-gatherers and we'd sleep around a common campfire area in a small tribal group. And if some people were staying awake later and some people were waking up earlier, then there was kind of a built-in protection to detect problems like predators or other bands that might be raiding. So I always wonder about how did these things evolve? And I can see an advantage to pe different people having different sleep regimes. And speaking of recent inventions, radio is another one of those recent inventions. And if you want to support this radio station, please do so by going online, kgnu.org, or call us at 303-449, sorry, 303-499-4885 to pledge your support today. And if you just woke up, you can think about your sleep patterns as Angel and I keep talking about sleep on your local radio station, kgnu.org. Do you find that you're sleeping in shifts now? I do find that I naturally will go to sleep for three to four hours and pop awake. 
And if uh, what I call a good night's sleep is, of course, if I sleep all the way through. But I do sometimes find myself awake at two or three, and I need to quietly read, or you know, or just um, turn a soft light on and and look at something. Sometimes I do a puzzle online or something. And if I do it quietly with, of course, my laptop light turned down, then I not, I do often fall asleep about after an hour. So it was interesting to read about this study because maybe that's more natural. Maybe I'm hearkening back to my, yeah, maybe I'm going caveman on, on that. Your ancestral roots. My ancestral roots are coming alive or something. And I think, too, that those patterns come out more as we get older because I'm finding that uh, more and more of my friends and acquaintances of a certain age are experiencing this kind of shift sleep. And when we're younger, of course, our metabolisms are more active, we're building tissue, we're doing all kinds of stuff typical of young organisms, and that all takes energy. And so I think maybe as we're younger, it's more normal to sleep in an uninterrupted fashion. And then as we get older, and in an evolutionary sense, the older individuals were expendable to the tribe. They're past their reproductive age. And maybe that's why we're sleeping in shifts, because we were the ones that were up watching for danger. Oh, that was how we served our use to society when we were older? <laughs> yeah. Is we... that we kept watch and we listened for, for strange bumps in the night? Right. And we sacrificed ourselves, if need be, by being awake. <laughs> well, it's good, to, it's good to realize I had some use. My ancestors had some use at this age. <laughs> so nowadays you can sacrifice, but not with your life. You can just give a small bit of money to your local radio station, KGNU. So if you like this show, or if you like the music that you hear on KGNU, please call in 303-499-4885 or go online, kgnu.org, and pledge your support today. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us this morning. Yeah. Absolutely. I love this book. I finished it yesterday, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And it's it's just a clever and fresh look at some materials inventions. I love how you break it down for readers. So you are yourself a materials scientist as well as a science writer, correct? That's right. That's right. So I'm a material scientist. I got my doctorate at Stanford a couple of decades ago and have been doing material science for some for some time. In your book, you you do a nice job of explaining to readers what material science is. Can you explain to listeners who might not know exactly what the field entails? Sure, sure. I, I always liken material science to my home state of New Jersey because uh, both material science and New Jersey have been overshadowed by their neighbors. Uh, for, New, for New Jersey, those, those neighbors are New York and Philadelphia. You know, you drive through New Jersey, you get from one to the other. And, and material science is sort of the same. In fact, it's wedged between chemistry and physics. It's really interested in how atoms bond. And so that's the chemistry part. But it's also interested in how materials behave and so that's the physics part. Yeah, I love it. It's like New Jersey. I really laughed out loud when I read <laughs> when I read that. So, some of the inventions that you cover are the oldies but goodies. It's, you know, how steel came about, light bulbs, photographic film, telegraphic wires, silicon chips. 
uh, laboratory glass, but you put a really uh, new spin on it. You talk about not only how these materials transformed our world, but also at a more deeper uh, personal level, how they really changed us. So what, ins what inspired you to go back to these materials inventions and this history and retell the story in a different way? Oh, that's a great question. Well, you know, I've been a material scientist for some time, and, and there's many books about chemistry and, and material science, which really focuses on the material and who the person was and, and what was the circumstances for them making that creation. But over, over the last couple of decades, as being a material scientist, you soon learn about how these inventions live in the world. And so I wanted to really explore how these older inventions, not only how they came to be, because although I knew a little bit about it, I didn't, I didn't know very much. Uh, I also wanted to know what was the impact of those inventions. So I went on a journey a couple of years ago to uncover older technologies, like you mentioned, the, the telegraph, the light bulb, and also the computer, and see who made these things, what were the key inventions, but also how they shaped us. One thing you wrote about artificial lights, which really fascinated me, is that it has changed not only our sleep habits, but our health. And you also write that it has made us feel self-important. <laughs> yeah. Write, yeah. Can you explain a, bit, a little bit about that? Because they have basically acted as a filter for the night sky. Yeah, it's really shielded us from the night sky. I mean, I live in the city, and if I look up, I'm only going to see a handful of stars, and they're going to be the very, very bright ones. But a couple of years ago, I was in uh, the woods in California, and I looked up, and I was like, oh, my goodness, there's this huge, beautiful canvas of all these wonderful stars that I just don't get to see. And when you see those things, you feel like you're part of something bigger. In fact, you don't feel so big. But when you're underneath the bright lights, like in the city, you kind of feel more important. So, so what I talk about in The Alchemy of Us is that uh, the lights, they were great because they allowed us to experience more of the day and, and function at night. But what they did is they actually masked the sky and prevented us from being connected to nature in, in many ways, so, and, which I think is a great loss. Yeah, you're right that the universe is now invisible to us. It is easier to incubate hubris under these lights. It's like the dark sky is now a mirror instead of a window. Right, yeah. exactly. And then I had never thought about the telegraph. You explained so nicely about Morse and Morse code and, the, and then the copper wires and, and how that all works. But I hadn't appreciated that the telegraph really shaped our language. Can you explain that in a little bit? Sure. So our language is always shaping. It's always being shifted. It's, it, language is very, it's very much like a living thing. Uh, but what I learned while writing The Alchemy of Us is that the telegraph, which had a limitation, meaning that it couldn't handle a lot of messages, um, made it possible that it shaped language as well. Uh, if you went to a telegraph office uh, many, many, many decades ago, they would say, hey, you know, you're, you're happy to use this, but you have to be brief. And that's because they couldn't handle a lot of messages. They had maybe two lines or four lines, so four messages could go one way and four messages could go another way. And in order to keep the lines available for future customers, they encourage all customers to keep very brief. And uh, telegraphs became very popular in newsrooms, and editors would tell their uh, reporters the same thing, same thing, be succinct, use short declarative sentences, remove any fluffy things that don't really add to the meaning of the sentence. Now, there was one reporter who loved this style of yep. writing with yep. short, decla short declarative sentences. Yeah. And he, he went on to be someone that we all know today. Right. His name is 
Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, but when I was in school, they, they always told us to write like Hemingway. Well, <laughs> what they're telling us, they're telling us to write like the style that was honed and fashioned by the telegraph. Yeah. So who, who knew? Yeah, they told me to write like Hemingway. If they had just said, <laughs> write Morse code, maybe, maybe that would have been even easier. <laughs> you also write about photographic film. It's a really interesting story that I had you know, no, uh, no idea about how this was used in the end. But you write about how photographic film, did, you know, it was not calibrated for taking photos of African-American skin. It leaves people with dark complexions underexposed, and it was a real problem. And, of course, mother, you know, African-American mothers were complaining about this for years. Polaroid, you, you corrected for this underexposure by adding, like, this booster flash. That's right. Yeah. yeah. If, you and, have, if you go on eBay and you find an old Polaroid camera, you'll see this special button that says boost. And you'll, and you'll say, what is that for? And what that does is it gives the flash a little bit more umph, a little bit more brightness. That brightness is to compensate for darker skin because darker skin absorbs more light. So, so this is how these two different corporations uh, try to mitigate the fact that their color film was really designed for lighter skin. Well, it sounds like a, a great and worthy addition, but in the end, and you explained this so well, it was actually used for nefarious purposes. It, it was used to enforce the, the police state of uh, apartheid South Africa. It's Absolutely. Not, it's, and and that, that was amazing to me. I mean, I loved Polaroid film growing up. My grandfather used to have one of these cameras, and it was amazing because you can get a photo in, in 60 seconds, and you didn't have to go to a dark room to get it processed. But that ease and that convenience actually helped to buttress apartheid because it ends up that uh, in 1970, where the story takes place, two, two employees found that all black South Africans had to carry with them a passbook. And a passbook controlled where they could go because it told the officials where this person's allowed and where they could work. But at the heart of the passbook was a picture that was processed with Polaroid film. And so they didn't think, uh, those two employees didn't think that that was correct. They didn't think that was right for uh, this technology to be used in this way to enable this oppressive governmental system. So they became activists to convince Polaroid from stopping. Uh, they convinced Polaroid to stop selling its technologies to uh, South Africa. But this pretty much was under the radar in the United States. Most people didn't know about this, and uh, a lot of it was hidden. So it took a lot of time for me, uh, time in the archives, to kind of unpack and, and, un and to discover how this story unfolded. It's really interesting and, and good work, good history there. Can you just tell lis listeners which part of our country did this take place? Where is Polaroid headquarters? Oh, sorry, yes. Polaroid was the apple of its day. It was like the most loved company, and it had a, a CEO that everyone loved, sort of like Steve Jobs of, of his day. His name was Edwin Land, and it was headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in fact, if, you ever, if you're in Cambridge on Memorial Drive, you'll see some old buildings that still have uh, the Polaroid name you know, engraved in stone. So it was a much-beloved company, the, the most you know, the most favored company in the United States. And everyone wanted Polaroid film. Everyone had it on their Christmas list. But little did people know that on the other side of the world, Polaroid film was reviled because it was part of this process of keeping people oppressed. Very interesting. So you have a lot of ability to communicate science and not in difficult science. Like these materials inventions aren't always easy to explain how they came about. And so for listeners, the alchemy of us doesn't just talk, talk about the history of science. It also explains the science as well in, in really easy to understand terms. 
So what, I mean, I want to ask you just a basic science education question. What, what do you think of the state of science education today, and, and how do you like fitting in with that? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. I think we're in trouble. I think STEM education isn't quite where it needs to be yet. I, and, and my opinion is still evolving, especially as a science communicator. I think we're working really hard to make uh, people future scientists. And there are some aspects of being a scientist that we need, but I don't think they need all the technical details that we're pushing on, on people. And in The Alchemy of Us, what I try and do is I make readers feel included because I want you to not only understand, and I try and make it as uh, simple as possible, you know, using analogies that people understand, like, you know, metallurgical souffle. That gives you an impression of how hard it is to make this material. So I use analogies, but I make people feel included by giving you a sense uh, and a feeling of how people also view that technology. So when we started off at the top, we talked about how material science is the New Jersey of science. You know, I, I, was, I, wanted, I want you to understand that it's located between two different fields, but I also want you to give a sense of how people look at it. And so I work very hard to not only explain the science as simply as possible, but also to make people feel included uh, so that they can feel like they're also an insider when it comes to this world of science. Oh, well, it's, it's a great job. I really like how you've done that. How would you like to refer to yourself if someone was going to say, Anissa uh, Ramirez, if someone says, Anissa Ramirez, comma, you know, author of The Alchemy of Us, comma, how would you describe yourself? Material science? Oh, I'm or- just, yeah, I'm a, I'm a material scientist and a science communicator, but in my heart, I'm just a kid from New Jersey who loves science and wants to share it with other people. And how, where in New Jersey did you grow up and where... How did you get so immersed into science so that you became a scientist in college? Oh, sure. I grew up in Jersey City, and that was in the 70s and 80s. And it wasn't, it wasn't the nice Jersey City that you see today, so it's very different. When I go to Jersey City, I don't recognize it, to be quite honest. Uh, but I, I fell in love with science at a very early age, uh, and it came from television. As I mentioned, Jersey City wasn't the nicest area. It was pretty tough, and so my brothers and I had to stay in the house, and so I I clocked a lot of television, clocked a lot of hours watching television. And uh, I had programs that I loved, like The Bionic Woman, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Star Trek, the original with Spock. But my favorite show was the show called 321 Contact, which was from public television. And on it, there was a repeating segment of kids solving problems. They were called the Bloodhound Gang, and one of them was this African-American girl who's just not, not much older than myself. But when I saw her, I saw my reflection. She was doing science. She was using her brain. She was a positive role model because I really didn't see too much, uh, didn't see too many people who look like me on television who were in a positive light. So that's kind of put me, that put me on the path to becoming a scientist. And years later, I decided I wanted to be a material scientist. And that's what's talking to you right now. Oh, it's a, it's a great story. And I want to congratulate you on all your success This is The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And it's been winning quite a few awards. That's correct, right? Yeah, uh, I just uh, found out from AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and Subaru, they have a prize. uh, And uh, this was selected as their top prize. Oh, great. Yeah, and I saw that Smithsonian Magazine has voted it one of the 10 best science books of 2020. So we're really lucky to have a few copies here to give away to our listeners. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest. This is a science show. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, we have a lot of um, loyal geeks. <laughs> 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 well, even the non-geeks. I mean, I wrote this book that for people 
who may not think that they're science geeks, but I wrote a lot of history to keep you going. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. You you wrote for both audience. Well, you wrote for more than one audience because I am a geek and it, it kept me going too. So you wrote. You hit a lot of audiences. It's it was nicely done. So congratulations. Thank you, Thank you so much. Yeah. kgnu.org or call 303-499-4885 to pledge your support at any level. You don't have to go to the 88.5 level today. And I should mention this book has been selected as one of the best science books of 2020, and that was a selection by Science Friday. Also, Science News selected it as one of the best science books of last year, as did Behavioral Scientist, giving it a notable science book rating, and it was a finalist for the AAAS Subaru Prize for Excellence in Science Books by Young Adult Science Book Winners. So we were very happy to be able to interview Anissa Ramirez and read one of her first books. So so if you want the book and you want to read it after today's show, go to kgnu.org or call 303-499-4885 and pledge at the $88.50 level and we'll give you a copy of the book. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Jill Shong, with additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, with additions from Yo-Yo Ma. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jill Shong.